0: you turn to Nehemiah and chapter 13 please, if you haven't already done so. I won't ask how many were obedient to the heavenly vision and read the chapter through. But I think what we'll do, because we're rather fighting time this evening, is uh, read the... Appropriate sections as we come to them, rather than reading the whole chapter through now. Let's just pray. Father, we thank You for Your purpose to teach us in Your Word. We thank You, O oh God, that we've been released to praise You, released from darkness and rebellion and blindness going our own ignorant way, until by your wonderful grace you revealed Jesus to us and granted us repentance unto life. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have brought us into an everlasting covenant relationship with you. We thank you that, Lord, you rejoice over us to do us good. We thank you, Lord, you have determined to Plant us in the land with all your heart and with all your soul. Now we ask in the name of Jesus that in this word tonight we shall be fortified and strengthened. We shall be enabled to stand and having done all to stand. And Lord, in that day when you come to be standing, laboring, looking for your return, oh God, help us tonight. I pray that, Father, you'll give me the ability to be succinct and to the point. And I pray, Lord, that we, in your mercy, shall all find the anointing of the Holy Spirit to hear you so that we go on our way knowing that you've sent us, knowing, Lord, the things we shall face and going before us and going with us. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. Amen. Last evening, having seen something of the battle that's involved in restoring Zion, having seen how they had, first of all, to fight and build at the same time, we came on to see what were some of the significant features in establishing a community, of becoming a people. And we noticed the place of loving unity. We noticed the essential place of understanding the truth As in the story of Nehemiah, Ezra, the teacher, came and for many, many hours spent his time expounding the law of God. Then we saw how they came for a week to live in tents or booths, to remember that they were a pilgrim people, they were redeemed from one world, They didn't really belong to this world, though they were rebuilding Zion. Actually, they were looking forward to the day when they would enter right into all their inheritance. That's also wonderfully true for us. We saw their sense of history, which gave them roots and identity. And we saw at the very end that wonderful march of the two choirs as they went around on the walls, rejoicing that these walls that apparently at the beginning looked as though they could never, never stand, were now strong and standing secure, able to support marching, shouting, singing, choirs and orchestras. And uh, on that wonderful note, uh, we closed last evening, eventually. There's a great temptation for a preacher to forget that after that it says Nehemiah 13. It would be lovely to stop at the end of chapter 12 at a Bible week and say, and so they had this great praise time and the choirs went out and hallelujah, that's the end of the Bible week. And as I looked at chapter 13, which seemed such an embarrassing anti-climax after chapter 12, I said, please Father, may I finish on chapter 12? (laughs) And I felt quite clearly God said to me, no, you may not not only may you not finish on that note of glory and praise, uh, you must look at chapter 13 and faithfully concentrate on it, on that last night. Because in the end, life is not Bible weeks. Life is not feasts of Tabernacles, though in God's wonderful provision, He builds them into our life. It's God who ordained these three great festivals in the national Jewish year, when they would come and be before God, like the Feast of Tabernacles, God built them in. God saw the need of such occasions, and in his mercy, he's giving us something of a taste of those kind of things here. But God knows, and we know, that the real crunch comes, not while we're here, with thousands singing and praising, being inspired by musicians and by the glorious presence of God, but the real crunch is where we are next Monday and where we are in all the following weeks as we go back into our normal real life situation and chapter 13 is all about that really we should test Bible weeks not by how exciting or glorious or anointed they were the only true test of a Bible week really is how much was my life changed there that's the only truly valuable way of testing it. How much was my life changed? Can I really point to 1983 and say, my life was changed. I thank God for the number of people, right up to recent days, even here, who said that last week, last year, at the Downs Bible Week 82, their lives were dramatically changed. They've not looked back. God did a wonderful thing in their lives and it it went into a new dimension. I thank God for that. That's the real test. And not only individual lives, but also because we so encourage you to come in church camps and not come as just individuals, but come as bodies, that we long also that whole churches should say the whole church was changed. Our whole dimension of love and fellowship, being together, praise, understanding of God's purpose, the prophetic purpose of God, whole churches being changed. That's the real way that we can test the success of a Bible week? How has it lastingly affected our lives? And certainly, we understand that when we go down from a Bible week, there are all kinds of challenges to our lives. And chapter 13 of Nehemiah is all about such things. We find that Nehemiah returned to Babylon. And then, after a period of time, which isn't absolutely clear, he came back to Jerusalem, and he found some four areas where they had very sadly slipped back from the glory and the euphoria of those earlier days. And this last chapter and this last evening together must send us away with this serious warning that you can be full of joy, full of zeal, full of commitment in this tent, on this field, and still go back and miss the way we can still go back and slide and not get into that high resolve which we committed ourselves to on these evenings together here. We need to understand that. We need to be aware of that. We will be unfaithful not to point that out from the Scriptures. And so let's just look at the things which were encountered in the story and seek to learn the lessons. Verse 4 of Nehemiah 13, we read that Eliashib The priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests, During all this time I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me. So I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order and they cleansed the rooms and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. So here's the first little event. Nehemiah returns to find Tobiah is now in a house, which should have, a room rather, which should have been used quite differently, within the very house of God. And you remember Tobiah, I'm sure, from the story. He was the one who, at the beginning, said, "Even if a fox ran up, the whole thing would fall down." That's the same gentleman. He also sent letters. We read to frighten Nehemiah. And we read also that some were bound by oath to him. He's been a constant thorn in the flesh of Nehemiah. And here he is, right back into the centre of the life of Zion. Right back into the house of God. Now, what is the New Testament significance for us in this picture, particularly? As I was before God, I thought, Lord, what is it? Obviously, there are many ways... We could interpret such a thing that something being thrown out finds its way back in. But I felt, Lord, what is it particularly that you would speak to us about concerning this in the Word? And I I began to ask, what is it, Lord, that they found in the New Testament church like this? What did the Apostle Paul find that could be described in this kind of a way? That first of all was an enemy to the Gospel, perhaps mocking initially, but clearly an enemy, and then later on tried to oppose and then join in into the very life of the church. And I thought, well, Lord, what is it? What, was, what fulfills that? And to me it's very clear. There's something that thoroughly fulfills that picture in the New Testament. Something that at first just mocked, later harshly opposed ultimately tried to get right into the church life. Do you know what it was? Legalism. Let me explain what I mean. At first, the legalists, personified by the Pharisees, heard about this breakthrough, this glorious new gospel that was coming. John the Baptist, as that first restorer, burst on the scene, only to be defied by the legalists. They mocked him. They said, look, we're Abraham's sons, we're in charge around here. It's our land, we're true sons of Abraham. (laughs) Then we find Jesus came upon the scene. And they were, again, encountering him. First of all, they mocked him, they said, oh, son of a carpenter, isn't he? Nothing significant here. None of the Pharisees are following him. And then later, as Jesus' strength gathered momentum, we find their mockery changes to serious deba- debate. They try to catch him in his words. They put clever arguments with him. They say, whose faces are... or at least, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They, they catch the woman caught in adultery. They say, what do you say? They're trying to get him debating. Just in the same way that we see in Nehemiah's story. We see lies we see threats of murder. And they say, we are of Moses. They're the legalists, opposing. But then later we read, many priests were converted. And then subsequently we read in Acts 21, 20, thousands of the Jews have believed and they are zealous for the law. And they're zealous for the law. And what happened was this legalism, which first opposed the gospel, many later became converted and brought their legalism right on into the house of God. And what we find is, towards the end of the book of Acts, there's the apostle Paul back at Jerusalem, and he's prevailed upon to shave his head, to take a vow, to go into the house of God. It means trouble for him from then on. He's trying to handle this thing that's found its way back in that should never have got in to the house of God, legalism. It was an enemy, and then it crept back into the house of God. If you look at the book of Galatians, which I asked you if you might read, if you had time today, you'll have found terrific parallels. Perhaps you'd like to just turn to it even now. There, the Apostle Paul planted a pure new church through the Gospel. Later on, however, when he gets in touch with this church and hears news of it, he is appalled to hear that this gospel, planted on a pure foundation, has got legalism creeping right back into it again. And so he writes to them in this fashion. He says to them in Galatians chapter 3 verse 4, Did you suffer so many things in vain? You could say that to those with Nehemiah. You worked hard to get this city restored. You worked hard to get this house up. Did you suffer so many things in vain? You've got Tobiah right back into it. And here he can say to the Galatians, did you suffer so many things in vain? Because now you've got legalism right back in your ranks. And then in chapter four and verse eight, he says this. At that time, When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've laboured over you in vain. He says, you used to be in bondage to those precious, those elementary things, those that religion was, which was just observing special days, special seasons, special uh, years. You were in bondage to that. The Gospel released you. The Gospel brought you into freedom. And he says, what if in vain, you've now subjected yourselves again to that bondage. And then later, in the same chapter, chapter 4, verse 21, he says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not now listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. The son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through the promise. This contains an allegory. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are slaves. She's Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. For it's written, Rejoice, barren woman who doesn't bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labour. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Jew brethren like Isaac are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of a free woman. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. I believe we can see an absolute parallel here then, in the book of Galatians. (coughs) A church which was pure, the product of the gospel, But legalism had crept right back in and Paul says, look, this is clearly taught in the Old Testament that there are two forms of religious life. There is that bondage which is just the product of the flesh. It's like Hagar who was produced by Abraham through human endeavour, human effort. He says that's an image of the Jerusalem that's around now. It's all rules, Regulations, observing certain things, wearing certain clothes, observing certain religious laws, imposing laws upon yourself and trying to obey them. He says, that is Hagar. That's just the flesh. That's just the law. It will never, never produce what God's after. Then there is the other covenant, the Jerusalem that's from above. That's free. That's by faith. That's by the Holy Spirit. That is nothing to do with the law. And so we get this parallel. It says, cast out the bondwoman. We find with Nehemiah as Tobiah who first threatened and brought some people into an oath of loyalty like some people are with the law and legalism. Ultimately, he creeps into the house of God and Nehemiah says, throw him out and his furniture. Now, beloved, as we go from this place, we've got to understand the difference of living in the Spirit or living under law. Many of us, on an occasion like this, make the tragic mistake. Because we've been so excited, we've been so challenged to go forward with God, we say, I will go forward. I will put my life on the line. I will main business for God. I will do this and this and this, I'll, I'll put the alarm clock back half an hour, I will read the Bible more, I will witness, I'll do, and sometimes we, we get so serious, we, we write down all the things we are going to do, and without realising it, the thing we are doing is imposing law upon ourselves. And after a little while, that law, instead of releasing us into life, becomes condemnatory. It just comes down upon us and condemns us and makes us feel so unworthy because we've forgotten how we reign in life. We reign in life through the abundance of grace. The free gift of righteousness, not through heavy laws which we impose upon ourselves. Now what happens when we impose laws upon ourselves? It's like putting a a resolution upon ourselves. I'm reminded of a A dear friend of mine, who's not sitting far away from me, leads the worship quite often here, um, (laughs) he said to a group of ministers back in the springtime, one morning, he said, as he sat down, about 15 of us there, he said, uh, I have established a new routine in my life. And uh, we said, oh yes, Dave, what's that? He said, um, uh, well, I get up at, I've forgotten what the hour was now, and... uh, I go jogging here and I do this and do that. And it was quite very impressive. We were all impressed, weren't we? Um, some remember being impressed. And uh, as he told us about this new routine, and we didn't meet the week after. And then we met the week after that. And one or two rather cheeky people, I think, came prepared, actually. And uh, as we sat there quietly, they said, um, uh, Dave, how's the new routine going? So, uh, Dave's shoes became quite interesting and... uh, (laughs) He said, well, uh, I'm not doing it anymore. (laughs) There was a bit of a frost, I think, the next morning. And we said, oh, by the way, how long that routine you established, um, how long did it actually last? So he said, Well, it was just that day, actually. (laughs) Now, I don't say that just for fun for Dave. I'd love to. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) There is a principle involved at Bible weeks, at the turn of the year, at big times when we can stop and say, Oh God, I wish I was more. I wish I was making more progress. I want to be more. And we impose upon ourselves certain laws and certain objectives and certain goals. I want to say to you, beware of that approach spiritually. Beware of it because of the danger that after a little while that desire, you see these people, they covenanted actually they put themselves under oath, if you read the whole of Nehemiah, you would find it, that they would do this and they would do that and they would do the other thing. And every oath they declared by chapter 13 is condemning them. Because they're saying, we will do it. We will obey the law. We will... No, no, that isn't the way you reign in life. It isn't what you do, it's what you receive. We reign in life through the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Romans five seventeen. we could spend all evening on that. It's a favourite theme of mine. But we need to know the good of it. That's how we reign in life. Reigning has to do with position, not performance. All being well, Charles, Prince of Wales, will one day become King of England. Not through his performance, but by virtue of his position. He has been born to reign, and we have been born to reign. We are related to the King. We are born to reign in life, not through laws which we impose upon ourselves. The law will always condemn us, always. Romans chapter 7 makes it very plain that the law always condemns. The law cannot save you. The law cannot sanctify you. It can only condemn you and lead you to Jesus. And if we try to get joy in our Christian walk by imposing laws upon ourselves, in the end, all we bring is condemnation. And it's a very subtle thing that the law tries to get back in. We may see it clearly. We say, oh Jesus, you're my saviour. And we come and find Jesus and we're taught quite plainly in Romans chapter 7 that there are two husbands. The law we're married to at birth and Jesus, who wants to become our husband. And the only way you can marry Jesus is by being freed from the law, your existing husband. You cannot have two husbands. Jesus has come to me. You say, well, I can't come. I'm married to the law. And then we suddenly find by the mercy of God that through the cross, we have died to the law through the body of Christ that we might be joined to another, even him who is raised from the dead. Hallelujah. And the Bible teaches the law will never pass away. It's always there. But the Christian has passed away. Hallelujah. He has died to the law through the body of Christ. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. We are discharged from the law. There is no way into joy and freedom and peace of mind by being married to the law. The law is totally impotent. If there was a law that could make a man righteous, hallelujah, but the law can't make us righteous. The law can point out our faults, show us where we're wrong, show us where we ought to go, but it doesn't give life. It only condemns. When we're saved, we turn away from that. We may have been religious before. Maybe someone here tonight, you're just being religious. Being religious will always condemn you because you can't make it, you can't reach the standard. The law condemns, it always points out, you are not holy enough. That is its purpose, that's why God's given us the law. It laughs at us, perhaps it seems to, it condemns us. And then we find that Jesus says, come to me, I've paid the price for the law. But I can, yes, you come to me, I've died for you, I've wrapped you up in my death, you are delivered from the law, you can be married to me. And whereas the law just told us what to do, never lifted a finger to help, Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you, and you'll bear much fruit. Jesus is a fruit-giving husband. He can plant his seed in my spiritual womb, and bear fruit. So I grow up in Christ, not by trying to obey laws, evangelical laws that I impose upon myself. I grow up in Christ, I bear fruit for God by developing my relationship with Jesus. So beware of legalism coming back into your life. Laws, because they'll only condemn you in the end. Reject it. Be very clear. Read through that first part of Romans 7. Get it very clear. We are discharged from the law. We are released from that which held us captive. Don't let it creep back in. The whole book of Galatians is about it. He's saying, how did Tobiah get back in that temple? Cast out the bondwoman and her child. Cast out the law. Don't have it in that way. Don't have its legalism. The whole book of Galatians is about it. So we must be very careful. That's the first lesson as we go on from this place. Beware that in your moment of zeal and enthusiasm, you do not impose laws upon yourself which utterly condemn. No, learn to live in the Spirit. Learn to live by virtue of your relationship with Jesus and His living word to you. His words are Spirit and life. Feed on them. He is the bread of life. He is food for your soul. His word brings forth faith, produces. The whole thing is wrapped up in listening to Jesus, getting to know Jesus, obeying Jesus, loving Jesus. You'll bear fruit then. The law will always condemn you. So that's the first thing. Tobiah had crept back in, just like the law crept back in at Galatians. And it has to be thrown out. Legalism always kills. Always. The letter kills. The Spirit gives life. You cannot get a greater contrast of results. The letter kills. The Spirit gives life. Don't impose letter upon yourself in the wrong kind of way. So that's the first thing that we see here. They had to beware of that. I want to ask you, beware of that. Live in the Spirit. Don't live under law. The second uh, development we find is in verse 10 and they're very varied here tonight verse 10 I also discovered upon returning to Jerusalem that the portions of the Levites had not been given them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. The second thing that happened then was that they began to lose their corporate vision. They stopped giving. They had been pioneers. They'd paid a terrific price. They'd left their homes in Babylon where perhaps they were secure, perhaps they had profitable businesses. They risked everything. There was a pioneer spirit about them. It may have cost them a great deal in terms of security to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. And in that early phase, they were full of zeal and and, and they gave, even though it cost them everything. But gradually they were getting settled. We find that by virtue of stopping paying one another heavy interest, which you will find in another chapter in Nehemiah, that they began to act with great grace towards one another. And out from that, they begin no doubt to prosper. The walls are up now. They're secure. And after the pressure has been removed and the sense of pioneer spirit has drifted away, this thing begins to happen. They lose their sense of commitment to the Levites. And whereas they used to be thoroughly committed, now we find the Levites have to go out and work on the field. Now, in God's purpose, the Levites weren't meant to have any land. The eleven tribes had land. The twelfth tribe, the Levites didn't have land. And the way that they lived was that the Lord was their portion and the other tribes gave a tenth of their income to keep the Levites. That was the way in which they were taught to function. That was the way God had taught them to live. And so, as each tribe gave a tenth, the eleven tribes gave a tenth, it meant that the Levites had just over the average of everybody else. As eleven tribes gave a tenth each. I want us to see here that there's a principle involved. We are not under law, we've just said. We're not under the Old Testament law, but nor was Abraham when he gave a tithe, and nor was Jacob. God gave him no instruction, but Jacob also gave a tithe. And there is a principle there in the Old Testament which isn't legal, Abraham and Jacob preceding the law and yet still doing this, which I believe we need to observe. We need to simply see there's a principle here that our finances often reflect the wholeheartedness of our commitment. And we need to see that where our treasure is, there is our heart also. And God wants us to be faithful in our giving. See, money is quite a danger area. And we need to find that our faithfulness to God is being reflected in material responsibility. In other words, the Bible says more about hard cash than any other religious book. Other religious books are very often very airy-fairy and about philosophies and thoughts. Jesus speaks about real life. And he says, the love of money, the Bible tells us, the love of money is the root of all evil. The Bible speaks to real people in the real 20th century and it says, If you cannot come to the place where you're honouring God with your giving, there is something wrong with your faith and your love and your sense of commitment to the work of God. And it began to give out here. It stopped functioning. Some of us say, well, I can't afford to give at the moment. Well, that means that we are not in faith. That means we are not observing these principles. God wants us to learn to give. If our supply is running out, I read somewhere once someone said, if your supply is running low, look around for something to give away. Because God has given a wonderful principle. Give, and it should be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over should be given to you. That is a word of God. There is him that scattereth, and yet increaseth. And there is him that holds, but it tends to poverty. We've got to be those who are generous givers. And I don't mean just sending it here, there and everywhere. One of the expressions, I believe, of what God is doing in his church today is being committed definitely to our local body. We thank God for money given over and above in places like this. We want to give out in many things we set before you evening by evening. But we're not hoping to take from you your committed, regular giving to your local church. Because that's your chief responsibility. I believe that we need to be educated about that, that our chief responsibility to give is back to the home base, not to send it off to this situation and that situation. If you've got a godly leadership, trust them to focus it around the world. But you show your committed faithfulness to your local work by giving systematically and clearly there. I don't want to labour this. I believe that in the main, God is teaching us this thing more and more. But simply to say, in faithfulness to the Word of God, this is one of the areas they failed in. Are you keeping your pastors properly? Are they on a correct wage? It says here, in this Old Testament style, that they had... Just over the average of the income of the others. In other words, with the extra expenses that a minister has, he probably works out about level when he's paid his extra expenses. Is your minister about level? He said, "Well, we'd keep him on about 5,000. He has got the manse. In other words, yes, he has got a tied house with all the insecurity that brings which he loses at retirement age and wonders what he'll do then. We do need to look into this, some of us more than others. It's one of the things which restoration life is changing churches in. Some churches are not looking after their people properly. And some ministers find they can preach to you about justification by faith, they can teach you about all kinds of measure, evangelism, faith and so on. The one thing they find it hard to preach to you about is looking after them properly. Of course. So I can take advantage of this big platform and speak on behalf of all ministers and say to you, you deacons and others who hold the purse strings of churches, you people who are supplying to that, are you looking after your men properly? Have they got a sort of wage that you'd be happy with? You say, well, he's a minister. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? Oh, he's a minister. I work for my living. <laughs> people say to you when you're a minister, what did you do when you used to work? <laughs> I used to only have an eight-hour day. Now, the, the, I'm just saying that here this biblical principle is that it kind of averages out. And ministers should be averaging out with the people in their churches, the men in their churches. It would be inappropriate if they were way below. It would be inappropriate if they were way above. They should be averaging out. And I pray that we're looking at that. And as I say... The eleven giving a tithe gives him that little bit more which helps him with expenses. Be realistic. Be practical. Don't get caught up in, well, as our, our church has always paid this much. No, be real. Let's express, re- express restoration in this thing also. Paul says in Corinthians, as you excel in all these other graces, excel in this gracious work also. And then the third thing we find where they failed is in verse 15 of chapter 13, where we see, and I won't read the whole section, In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading <coughs> wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys and so on. And uh, they were doing all this on the Sabbath day. And the next, all oh, about seven or eight verses, has to do with this defiling of the Sabbath. This is, one of the, this is one of the things that made the Israelites distinctive from all the other nations. The Israelites were not allowed to work and labour on the Sabbath. Others, other nations, worked and bought and sold. But Israel were to be different in this strange way. They were not to do any of these things. On a Friday evening, they had to begin to celebrate the Sabbath, which went right through that Saturday into nightfall on Saturday evening. That was something that God had ordained, which made them different to all the other nations. There were other things, but that was one of the most obvious. So other nations came up to uh, Jerusalem, and their, their, uh, those who were selling came up to the city. And they wanted to just carry on because the other nations all sold and bought and, and now with Nehemiah absent, gradually the Jews had just become like the other nations. And gradually they said, yes, come on in with your grain and come on. And they were working and they were buying and they were selling. They were treading the wine press, bringing loads into Jerusalem, verse 15. They were selling in Jerusalem, verse 16. And then later when Nehemiah begins to speak into it, some of these tradesmen actually camp outside the city wall. In other words, they want to bring people to the, as near as possible to defiling the Sabbath. Now, we need to understand that the Sabbath was something which was instituted for the Jewish nation, as we're told quite plainly in the New Testament. And I'll just read that to you so that we don't get muddled about this having just told you that we are free from law. It says in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Paul says these Old Testament figures are speaking of Christ. Whether it's festivals or days, Sabbaths, new moons, special ways of eating, special things to drink, all of them are shadows. They speak of something else. What they speak of is Christ. We haven't time to get into the book of Hebrews which tells us about this Sabbath rest that the people of God enter into. What I want to point out is The significance of it in the Old Testament, the significance in the Old Testament was this. The people of God were meant to be different. And as time went by, they stopped being different. As time went by, they began to allow the style of life of those round about them to be imposed upon them. And it's so easy for us in this terrific campsite as we walk past one another and we don't hear anybody curse, we don't hear anybody swear, we leave things that could be stolen from our caravans unlocked. We, we're just like heaven on Earth. There's such love and joy and freedom. It's beautiful. It's easy being a Christian here, isn't it? Oh, marvelous. It's when we get back out there, it's not so easy. And the danger of conforming to the worldly standard is what's before us here. It says in Philippians, we are to be blameless, innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation among whom you shine as lights. We don't shine as lights here because everybody's shining. Out there in the office where you work, in the in the university you attend, we are to be in contrast to the darkness, shining as lights. 1 Peter 2, keep your behaviour excellent among the Gentiles. 1 Peter 4, 3, the time past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. They are surprised that you no longer run with them. Are they surprised? Are you someone who causes surprises at work? Peter says that's the mark of the Christian. They're surprised. You used to be in those things. The time past is enough. Don't hanker back to it. You used to do it, but that time past is sufficient. Now, they're surprised you don't run with them anymore. That's what God wants. A completely different lifestyle. Are you different to the people at work know that you are different. Not just that you use religious language, but there's something essentially different about you. In Titus chapter 2 verse 12 it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. How does it bring salvation? How does the grace of God bring us salvation? Well this verse is very interesting. It says this, Teaching us to say no to ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God has appeared, gives us salvation, how? By teaching us to say no. Because the rest of the world is crooked and going that way, and we are going in the opposite direction. So the grace of God, not the laws... Not legal bondage, says I'm a Christian, I can't do that. No, the grace of God is instructing me, it's saving me. How is it saving me? It's teaching me to say no. We often have to say no, because the drift is the other way. And when we get back into the world, young people in here, you will demonstrate the grace of God often simply by saying no. That is the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, saving us. How? teaching us to say no. Do you say no when you should? That's one of the ways in which the grace of God is manifested. We say no to all ungodliness. And here these Jews, who originally were so zealous to get the walls up, so keen to get the walls up, march round them, singing tremendous choir, crash bang, and yet when Nehemiah went away, they said, oh, come on in. All that labour to get the wall up, all so futile because they allowed people still to come in. They opened gates to things they should never open their gates to. Beloved, beware. We're living in wicked, wicked days. The grace of God teaches us to say no. We had a memorable night here last year when we spoke about the whole area of physical uncleanness. I do pray that those hundreds who stood up to say that they'd really fallen in that area have proven the grace of God this year. The grace of God has instructed us to say no and to stay pure. We will never see revival until that becomes the norm. But we as a people are being instructed to say these walls are up here to make a difference. And we've all got to do it. Beloved, let's be careful. This man, Eliashib, who let Tobiah back in, is very interesting. It says of him earlier in the book, he didn't build opposite his house. He built one of the gates. And even the gate he built with, it doesn't say he built with, with the bars and the bolts of others. It says they, they put up the gate with the bars and the bolts. Eliashib didn't do that. He just built the gate and he didn't build opposite his house. Some of us are very good at putting up the gates, as it were. We are very interested in the uh, clarity of the gospel. Division, standing clear on the truth, the evangelical truth. That's the gate. We're more interested in theological separation. But opposite our house, moral (laughs) reformation and separation we're sometimes very sticky. We could argue strongly about how the church should be separate, how evangelicals should be separate. We know how to put the bars up. We know how to put the gates up, rather. But the man didn't build up at his house. He didn't make sure his own life was separate. Beloved, as we go from this place, full of praise, I, I trust, full of resolution, let's make sure the grace of God is teaching us to say no. That is how we work out our obedience to Christ sometimes. Simply that. And then just to mention that it wasn't just the Sabbath, but also we read in verse 23 to the end how they had actually become married, some of them, to the people of the other nations, which was completely, completely... Cutting across the commitment that they'd made, the whole purpose of the walls going up to speak of their being different with the other nations. Some of them had even become married, and some of them had become married to the relations of Sanballat. If you read in verse twenty-eight, they they they'd come into being married to the enemies of the gospel. Now, I don't need to labour this, do I? But just to say, we're told in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. What fellowship has light with darkness? If any of you are contemplating commitment to something which is darkness when you are light, whether it is simply marriage, whether it is dangerous friendships, whether it is dangerous Business partnerships. The Bible is very, very clear about it. What fellowship has light with darkness? There has to be that clarity, that distinction, that saying, well, I'm going to live for Jesus. Clear and wholehearted. Saying, no, this is clearly God's word to me. There's no playing about with this. Young people, there is no playing about with this. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. You might say, well, he's so lovely, this other student. I believe I could... If we got married, I could bring him to the Lord. It's so dangerous. And if he is in darkness and you are in light... You may have some superficial things that you enjoy. You may enjoy the same music, the same books. You may enjoy certain things on a superficial level. But if he's in darkness and you are in light, those superficial things are not enough to hold you together. You are courting absolute certain disaster. And so Nehemiah, we find, treats the whole thing pretty savagely. He deals with it. Fiercely, as you mustn't do this, and he begins to deal with it as a true reformer here. And then, lastly, and uh, as I say, very aware that tonight we must rush to a conclusion, just to notice the way the book ends. I was thinking, oh God, I, w- I would love to finish on chapter twelve. I'd love to finish with the choirs and the marching and the singing and the shouting. And God's saying, no, that isn't where it is. That's lovely. That's real. You've got to bring that into your church life. But I want you to understand this. You're going to go back into that real world. You're going to be tempted in all kinds of ways to get it wrong. You'll need to be continually arresting that drift, making sure you're walking with Jesus day after day, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, learning to live by faith in the Spirit. You've got to press on. That's what we're all on about. And then strangely, you're reading Nehemiah 13, and uh, it says, so I purified them from this, and I did this and I arranged the supply of the wood at appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. It's finished. It doesn't even say they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> it just suddenly stops. And as I looked at that, I thought, Father, what are you saying? I believe this is what God is saying: that we're all moving on with haste to a moment where it's all going to suddenly stop. We're all working on, like the book of the book of Acts is the same. The book of Acts doesn't finish, and so they took Rome. Woohoo! You know, it doesn't say that. It just says, and so Paul was in his private accommodation, which he rented, and he preached that, and he preached that, and stops. Suddenly it's the end of Acts. You think, "Hmm, perhaps they lost. It just stops. Acts just stops. Nehemiah just stops. This world is just going to stop. It will. It won't stop on the last night of a tremendous international Downs Bible week. (laughs) Next week the Lord's going to come, all shoot up to Plumpton. We're all, hallelujah. No, it won't be like that. We won't suddenly be here with cymbals and violins and, oh, here we go. (laughs) It won't be like that. It'll be like this. Just collecting the wood at the appointed... Finished. You say, but I thought there was some more. No, no more. Finished. I believe that speaks to me with all my heart. It speaks to me. yes, Praise God for the Downs Bible Week. But God's saying, press on, press on. And then suddenly, finished. It'll be all over. And it's very plain from the Bible that that is how it will be. Like a thief in the night. When Noah, it says it'll be like the days of Noah. They were marrying, buying, selling, working. Suddenly, that was it. The flood came. It'll be like that. They thought... Silly fellow. They had no sense of time or awareness. Suddenly, it happened. It says it will be like the days of Lot. They were just buying, selling, working, marrying. Suddenly, and that day stopped. <laughs> we are near to that day. It will stop. No more church history. No more world. No more of this time. The end of this present age. Gone. Just like that. Finished. Without any sense of building to it. It will come like a thief in the night. Suddenly, you'll think, oh, it's finished. It will really be like that. Finished. No sense of occasion. No sense of build-up. Finished. You look at Matthew and chapter 24, and with this we close. Matthew chapter 24. 24. Verse 43. Verse 42, therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions." Really, if we knew that the Lord was coming next week, it ought to be that our lives... You say, well, what would you do? You say, I'd do what I was going to do anyway. Because we are constantly seeking to live in the light of that. That he will come any time. That the story will suddenly finish. At, At some stage, God knows when, when the last of the redeemed is redeemed, is brought in, born of God, God will say, enough. I've waited long enough. That's the end. Usher in new heaven, new earth. And some people will be halfway through a step. Some people will be preparing for an examination. Some people will be looking forward to their wedding day. Some will be longing for their first child. Some will be so thrilled that their daughter's going to get married. There are all sorts of things. That holiday we've been saving for for ages. We're going to have it. It won't happen. Those things we set all our hopes on. It's suddenly refinished. That's why we have to remember that Feast of Tabernacles. We live in that sense of, Lord, you could blow the whole thing down any night. The tent could go. This whole world, just like a tent, just wrap it up, any time, any time. That's why it is so foolish to live for this world It's so foolish to get caught up in something that's transient because any time it can just stop. It doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason, it will stop. And that's how the the end of this world and all its history will be. It will suddenly stop. Like a thief in the night. Just happen. God wants us to live in the light of that. Nehemiah went away and when he came back he found things weren't all as they should be. Jesus told many parables about men who gave responsibility, talents, ability, went away and then came back. Jesus has given us life, responsibility. He's gone to glory. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. He's doing glorious things all around the world in these days. He's pouring out His Spirit. He's preparing the church for the last outpouring He's getting us ready. He's teaching us about discipling so that when the harvest pours in, we know how to care for them. They won't have to sit in stodgy meetings. They'll find something real and alive they can relate to. All this preparation, all this restoration, it's all to the whole purpose of a huge harvest and then the Lord will come. But we won't be conscious of it as a big Bible week. It'll just be press on, press on, press on. Suddenly, God alone knows when the last one's saved. There won't be some huge shout. Have you heard the last one got saved? It was in Afghanistan. No, we won't know. (laughs) We won't know. God will say, last one in. That's enough. I've had enough of sin, sorrow, rebellion. I've had enough. God is so patient and gracious, and merciful, and has waited centuries. But when that last one comes, he'll say, enough. And we won't know who or where, but God will. And suddenly the story's finished, and we should be ushered into a new heaven, and a new earth, where righteousness dwells. And those who are faithful, those who are laboring faithfully, what does he say? I set you over these things. I give you responsibility. You were faithful when he came. Those whom the, fast, the master finds working in that way, truly he will put them in charge of all his possessions. Whatever that means. Come, sit with me on my throne. Cities. Responsibility to work for Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God's met with us this week in so many ways. He's shown us our need of faith. He's shown us our need to abandon the fig leaves, hiding behind religion. He's powerfully challenged us that he's looking for captains of fifties and hundreds, thousands. He's looking for progress. He's shown us Zion in ruins. Let's find zeal to put it up. He's shown us it's a battle or oh, we've got many enemies. He's shown us what it is to be a community. And he's shown us this, that it doesn't finish up in the great praise times, though I trust we're going to enter into such a time right now. But we're going to go from this place, you and I, and this meeting, this number of people will never meet like this again. This is a unique meeting as everyone like this is. This same number of people will never gather like this. But we go in the light of what we've heard this week. We go out into that world and God is looking for us to be absolutely true that the reason we put the walls up wasn't just that we got excited about it. We wanted to be clear for God. We wanted to live holy in this wicked, crooked generation and shine as lights holding forth the word of life distinct, different, not legal, but loving Jesus, but different, not getting married to this world, different, ready for his coming. Let's pray. Hallelujah, Lord. O Lamb of God you take away our sin you clothe us now in robes of righteousness you set us free and protect us from all harm we thank you for all the wonderful things you've done for us Lord by your grace we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb as we declare the testimony of your word. Oh, teach us, Lord. Teach us to receive that blood of righteousness as a free gift. Teach us to overcome all the subtle devices of the enemy and make us more than conquerors when you return. Thank you for growing faith in our hearts. Thank you we're beginning to believe you for healing For mercy and deliverance. Thank you, Lord, that our faith, even this week, we have been growing in faith. We pray for one another. May we have something of the spirit of Nehemiah that we shall have good success. Remember the Lord, great and terrible, and fight. Oh, God, build it into us, we pray. May we remember him May we go on our way strengthened with his resolve. We thank you for one who said, zeal for your house has consumed me. We thank you for one greater than Nehemiah ever was. Lord Jesus, we honour you. Our great captain, our great apostle, our great saviour and redeemer. Go before us, we pray, and go with us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.